Well, I hope you already know this, but in life, there's only two paths. There's only two roads. The Bible tells us there's this highway and a low way. Every person's life. And by the way, ultimately, your destiny is marked by the choice you make regarding the way you go. So each of us has to choose wisely, then, if, if your whole destiny is marked up in this. Decisions determine destiny. And so the road you choose marks the course of your life, not only, by the way, for your present life here on earth, but for all eternity. This is a really important matter. And, and Psalm 1, which is the introduction to this wonderful book called Psalms, really shows the difference here between the two paths of life. See, there's one road here that leads to blessing, and then there's another road that leads to cursing. Now, I I hope the obvious choice lays here before you. God's going to show you both of these paths. He's going to show you the one to blessing. He's going to show you the one to cursing. There's one that leads to salvation, one that leads to destruction. So my friends, as we look at this psalm together, just please take note. There are only two roads in life. That's it. Only two roads. You have the way of the godly and the way of the ungodly. And Psalm 1 is going to contrast those for you. And I hope by the end here it's going to be pretty obvious what is the best choice for you. So let's think about these two roads together as we read Psalm 1. Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord, that's Yahweh, knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. That's the gate into the book of Psalms for us. And so, notice it starts off by telling us the way of the godly. The way of the godly, someone who is Christ-like, like God, in other words. And here's the proposition from Psalm chapter 1 today, my friends, is that God wants you to live the godly way. He wants you to walk on this path, which is the way of the godly. Well, what is the way of the godly like? Well, first of all, we see here in verse 1 that they are happy in the Lord. They're happy in the Lord. Now, you don't see the word happy there, but let me explain something to you here. You do have this wonderful, amazing word, blessed. And one commentator said this, quote, The psalm begins with the emphatic declaration that God's abundant favor will rest on the person who lives a truly God-centered life. In the original Hebrew language, the word blessed is repeated. This is the Hebrew method of indicating the plural, intensifying its meaning. Thus, the phrase should read, 
Oh, how very happy. Or another way of saying it, the happinesses, <laughs> which is awkward, isn't it? Another way you could say it is, oh, the blessednesses. You can see why in English we have it this way. A little easier to say. But it's a very important word as we get into this. That, that word means an overflowing joy. The idea is that you have a full contentment. And so where is this full contentment, this overflowing joy found? Where is this happiness found? In reality, my friends, the soul satisfaction is found in Yahweh Himself. And Psalms repeats this theme over and over again. Let me give you just two verses to ponder. For example, here's one to think about. The Psalter says that in chapter 16, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Here's another one. It's not a one-off. In chapter 21, it says, For you make him most blessed forever. You make him glad with the joy of your presence. So do you see what Psalms is teaching us? You are blessed with God's presence. That's how it starts for the way of the godly. But moving on to another point of what the way of the godly is like, we see also here that they are separated from the world. The godly are separated from the world. And the godly person is shown here to... Uh, in a not doing some things and they do some other things. Okay, let's think about the negative aspect because that's what the Bible lays out for us. First, first of all, we see that the godly refuse secular philosophies and humanistic values. Secular philosophies and humanistic values are refused by someone who is godly because this person does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. And so if you want to be godly, it means you're not going to walk or live, if you will, in the counsel of these wicked people. And and that just means you're going to refuse then the worldly philosophies that they hold to and their humanistic values. You're, You're going to refuse their worldview. Right? Theology always drives your methodology. So if you think about their worldview and their theology that goes with that, is it any wonder you get humanistic values? See, is God at the center of the universe and your life, or is you know is it you? <laughs> is it a man-centered universe? For many people it is. See, but a godly person is going to have a different standard of morality and a different pursuit of pleasure from the ungodly. And that means uh, Christians should be rejecting Marxist movements. And if you don't know what I'm referring to in these days, please come talk to me afterwards. There's too many of them. Lest I sound political, I don't mean to, but there are, there are worldviews out there that are destructive. Don't be fooled. Don't walk in the council of these type of movements. Some of you may not be familiar with 
secular philosophies. What, what is this talking about here, walking not in the counsel of the wicked? Well, I, I went to the Internet. And there's a website called secularhumanism.org. Go right to the horse's mouth, so to speak, here, right? So this is how they defined it. Secular humanism is a comprehensive, non-religious life stance that incorporates three things. And I'll explain them quickly to you. Uh, the first one they mention is it incorporates a naturalistic philosophy. Remember, the theology is, is leading to a certain philosophy then drives the methodology. So they have this naturalistic philosophy, and, and here's what they say. The secular humanists say, quote, the secular, that secular humanism is philosophically naturalistic. In other words, it holds that nature, the world of everyday physical experience, is all there is. And that reliable knowledge is best obtained when we question nature using the scientific method. So naturalism asserts that supernatural entities like God, for example, don't exist. And so if your theology is God doesn't exist, is it any wonder we act like animals and we have a culture of death? Well, that's what you get. Because your theology always leads to a methodology. So it's not only the naturalism here, but number two is they have a cosmic outlook rooted in science. Uh, They even say on their own website that secular humanism provides this cosmic outlook, and and they mean just a worldview in the broadest sense. And it's grounding our lives in the context of our universe and relying on methods demonstrated by science. So science becomes kind of like the new god to worship in a way. And so they see themselves as undesigned. They, uh, th- that's their word, undesigned, unintended beings who arose through evolution. <laughs> right? So if you, if you kill God, then what's your purpose in life? Where do you come from? Why are you here? Where are you going? All these big questions of life have to still be answered and they got to find answers somewhere. And so, out of that secular humanism comes Darwinian evolution. And so, you just have life is no longer sacred. There's no longer the sanctity of human life. And so we come up with euthanasia and abortion, and the list goes on and on and on. But the third one is a consequentialist ethical system. And this is what we were just watching in Sunday school where pragmatism comes into play. It's, it's you, you judge everything by its results. The end justifies the means. That's what they mean by consequentialist. And by the way, that's in, as even the, they themselves say, that's in contrast to the command ethics in which right and wrong are defined actually in advance. <laughs> and attributed to divine authority. So, if you kill God, then there's no divine authority, right? And even the Humanist Manifesto number 2 said this, that no God will save us, so we have to save ourselves. That's what you get. No God, so you have to save yourself. Which, of course, we know is not possible. So, th- this, is, this is the very thing that God is saying for you to not walk in. This type of counsel. It's all around us. You'll see it in the media. You'll see it at the library. You see it on the internet. Talk to your workmates. 
it's everywhere, in other words. Walk not in the counsel of the wicked, God says. But there's another one here. We, we see that we're also, number two, to, to, that, that the godly refuse sensual behavior. Refuse the sensual behavior. Because notice progression here. Nor stands in the way of sinners. See, a righteous person doesn't stand in the way of sinners. Godly people actually resist the lure of the crowd to participate in their carnal activities and in their sensual living. Today, the, the big movement today is the whole LGBTQ plus community and their agenda. If you don't agree with them, then you're guilty of hate speech. And so they want you to go to their weddings. And God's saying, don't go to their weddings. Don't support their weddings. Don't stand in the way of these sinners. Yes, by all means, love them, but don't condone the sin. Uh, We're not to condone the sin of destroying little girls' bodies through transgenderism. That's the new big cult that's taking place today. So countries that now, as I told you earlier, countries are passing laws where you can't even say something negative against transgenderism in the privacy of your own home. It's coming to New Zealand, where we will be put in jail for how dare we talk about biology instead of how people think and feel. Yes, by all means, love them, help them. But God says, refuse their sensual behavior. The third thing he says here is, See, the godly person doesn't sit in the seat of scoffers, verse 1 says. And so the godly refuse then to associate with people who scoff at God. See, Peter warned us a long, long time ago, right? First century. He said the scoffers will come in the last days. They will come. They will come. And they have. The godly people do not sit in the seat of these mockers. They avoid the close relationships. By all means, witness to them. Tell them who Jesus is and what He's done for them. But be careful of, of, a, of a close relationship with these blasphemers, these atheists, particularly the new atheists. They're the ones that are more in your face with their worldview. You have to be careful because the Bible tells you in 1 Corinthians 15 that bad company corrupts good morals. Right? Iron sharpens iron. Proverbs tells us, friend sharpens the countenance of a friend. You have to beware. And so the, you get like new atheists like Richard Dawkins writing books called The God Delusion. He's a blasphemer. He hates God. And in, in, in The God Delusion, he said some horrible things. Like, for example, he said, The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it. A petty, unjust unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynist, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. Wow. That was hard. Hard to read. It's hard to listen to, isn't it? He's a mocker of God. Yes, we need to witness to him. 
He needs to know Jesus. But God says, you don't sit in the seat of scoffers. But there is something positive that godly people do. Number three, we see here in verses two and three, they are saturated with God's word. You're to be saturated with God's word. See, it's not enough to just, you know, don't do this as verse one is, don't walk in that way, don't stand there, don't sit there. But God tells you what to do. And the first thing he says is that godly actually delight in the Bible. Verse 2 says, but his delight is in the law of Yahweh. Notice that it's not sinful to have delights. <laughs> Has anybody ever told you it is? I hope not. It's not sinful to have delights. It's just important you have the right delights. And the question is, what is your delight in? Our delight ought to be in the Bible in, in this particular example. The God's Word, the law. So the person who knows genuine joy is somebody who's going to read the Bible. You're going to delight in God's Word. So, my question, friend, is do you truly desire to read your Bible? Yeah, you're going to have days when you're going to struggle with that. <laughs> your, your sin nature is going to rise up and, 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 and attack you in this way because your sin nature doesn't want you to do this. So, but if you, if you don't, then you're going to need to earnestly pray for God to break your cold, dead heart. Because a, a hungry appetite for God's truth is going to lead you to the second point we see here. Not only are you going to delight in the law, but verse 2 says, and on his law he meditates day and night. So you're going to meditate on the Bible. Not only delight in it, but if somebody's delighting in it, then you're going to think about this throughout the day. You're going to constantly set your mind on the truths of God's Word. And by the way, notice when the meditation takes place. It takes place throughout the day. Not just whenever your quiet time with God is, but throughout the day. And why do you do this? Why should you do this? Because focusing on the Scripture reveals the glory of God. I like the way Charles Spurgeon said it in his commentary on the Psalms. He said, quote, He is not under the law as a curse and condemnation, but he is in it, and he delights to be in it as his rule of life. He delights, moreover, to meditate in it, to read it by day, and think upon it by night. He takes a text and carries it with him all day long. And in the night watches, when sleep forsakes his eyelids, he muses upon the word of God. In the day of his prosperity, he sings psalms out of the word of God. And in the night of his affliction, he comforts himself with promises out of the same book. End quote. So my friends, delight in the Bible. Meditate upon the Bible. But number three, dig into the Bible. See, a godly person digs into the Bible. It's interesting. Let's just pick verse 3 apart here. Because notice, a godly person is like what? You're like a tree. But not just any tree. Not just like any tree. Notice the Bible says you are like a tree that's planted by streams of water. You're planted by streams of water. You're, you're not like 
one of those uh, those acorns that falls out of the oak tree and happens to plant itself in the ground, and eventually an oak tree grows up. No, you're not like one of those trees. You're like a tree that had a planter. And the planter tenderly loved you, dug a hole for you, and put you in a specific place. In this case, it was by streams of living water. You were well cared for, well taken care of by the Creator Himself. So you're not a wild tree. You're a a tree planted. So dig in, my friends. (laughs) Number four, the godly draw from the Bible. Because you're this tree planted by streams of water yielding its fruit in its season. So the person who delights in God's instruction is then, notice the, 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 the flow of thought here. Then you're going to be this tree planted by streams of water. Then you're going to draw your life sustain, sustaining nourishment from that stream, which is flowing through your roots. So the God-centered life is drawing spiritual vitality from where? The living streams is God's Word. That's what's compared here to the stream. So the word, notice the word streams is plural in your Bible. That's not a mistake. See, streams is plural because it's representing an abundance of life-giving nourishment. It's an overflowing supply of strength. It's God's sustaining grace conveyed to you through His Word. And so the godly then is someone who sets down deep roots getting all the nourishment that you need, drawing from that. So why do the godly do this? Because they know that God's Word can sustain them. Now I want you to see four results that the Bible has on the godly person here. Four results that the Bible has on a godly person. Lest you need motivation to read your Bible today and tomorrow, and the whole week, and the rest of your life, here you go. Number one, we see that God's Word brings stability. It brings stability because, notice what it says, this person is securely planted by many streams. In other words, you're always going to have plenty of water. You're not going to shrivel up and die. You will be nourished. You will be sustained. God's taking care of you. So therefore you have this stability. But number two, you... We see here God's Word also brings productivity. Not only you buy the streams of water, but you have fruit. And notice, what does it say about the fruit there in verse 3? Its fruit is yielding in its season. So you can be like this tree that yields fruit at its proper time. And that pictures, by the way, a continual fruitfulness in every season of life, whether... Your season of life is good or bad times. Also, number three, God's Word brings constancy. Constancy, the idea is constant. Your your leaf does not wither, verse 3 says. So the righteous person doesn't wither, dry up, and shrivel away. Oh no, it means that all the godly person does is going to have eternal value. You're going to have lasting results. But there's a fourth one here that we see God's Word brings prosperity. No, I'm not preaching a prosperity gospel here. It's in the text. What did God say? 
In all that he does, he prospers. So God's word here is so powerful for you that whatever the godly does will prosper. So that means that God's people, or the godly people here, enjoy a spiritually enriched life. The godly life is the fullest life imaginable. There isn't a better one. Well, that's the way of the godly described for us here in the first three verses, but as you know, the text goes on to describe for us the way of the ungodly. So, we ask the question then, friends, are the ungodly blessed? Well, the text says no. Are are, are they happy? Not so. Are they successful? Not so. Are they fruitful? No. Oh, sometimes the ungodly might look successful, might look prosperous, might look happy, but God says no, they're not. The ungodly actually do what God forbids in verse 1. They, ungodly, are the ones who walk in the counsel of the wicked. They are the ones who are standing in the way of the sinners. They're the ones who are sitting in the seat of the mockers. And so the ungodly are not so. And so unlike the righteous, the godly, who are like a tree whose leaf does not wither, the ungodly are described here like chaff that the wind just blows away. So let's look at God's description of them here. First of all, we see the ungodly are corrupted internally. It starts with the internal here in verse 4, because notice it says that the wicked are not so. They're not like this tree in verse 3 that's been planted by the many streams of water. They, They don't have this fruit, and they don't have leaves not withering. They're not anything like that. They're the opposite of that. And that's why God says in verse 4, the wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. So, some of us are agriculturally challenged growing up in cities. So let me describe this picture for you, because I had the privilege of, of having a mother who was a farm girl, and so I got to spend some time on the farm. And in fact, I did this very thing a few times. Because sometimes when we would bring in the wheat harvest in particular, do you, do you know wheat has these like little outside shells? Did you know that? And so uh, the wheat needs to be crushed to get the, the little outside shell off because you don't want to eat that part. It's, it's hard. It's nasty. You don't want to eat it. It's no good. So, so sometimes we bring it in the barn. You open up one side of the barn doors, open up the barn doors on the other side, you get out your little pork, uh, pitchfork, sorry, it's called a pitchfork. And so you, you get all your wheat, you're on the floor there, and it's, get, it gets crushed, and then you get your pitchfork under it, throw it up in the air, and guess what? The wind sweeps through one barn door out the other and takes the shaft, the chaff, away. Because the wheat is heavy, it falls back to the floor, and then you, all you have is this nourishing food left. And that's the word picture here of a, of a, threshing floor uh your your jew or your israeli of the time period would would typically put their threshing floor on a on a hill where they could get some good wind and threshing floors would then use that breeze to take away the chaff and the grain would be gathered it'd be brought up to that elevated place where the the chaff and the wheat could be separated 
they would use animals to crush the grain. And then they would grind that grain eventually. And so the wind would blow away those husks. The broken straw would be would be separated from the nourishing part. And that's the idea here, because worthless chaff was gathered and burned. It was gathered and burned. You, you don't eat worthless chaff. They, you didn't want that stuff, if the wind switched directions, you wouldn't want that stuff blowing back into your grain, because you can't eat it. It's useless, is the point God's making here. See, the ungodly are corrupted internally. They are like chaff. They are useless. But they're also unstable like chaff. They are unstable. And the wind drives them away. And the Im- this imagery is used to describe the ungodly and, and wicked who are empty. They're void. They're futile. They're shallow and worthless. And verse 5 actually gives us the results. If you are corrupted eternally, that, re- that leads to num- verse 5, which tells us the ungodly are condemned judicially. You are condemned judicially. Notice verse 5 says that, that they're not going to stand in the judgment. They don't have a footing. They have nothing to stand upon. They don't have the rock, who is Jesus. In other words... They, they will not have God's acceptance when they stand before Him on Judgment Day. What do they have? Well, they're going to be exposed for what they really are. They're going to be justly condemned in their sin. They're going to be sentenced to an eternal punishment in the lake of fire. How do we know that? Because that text doesn't say so. It just says that they're going to be like chaff that the wind drives away. So what's the, how do you know about their uh, condemnation judicially here? Well... Revelation 20 says this. There's a judgment coming for all unbelievers in Revelation 20 because it says, uh, here, well, here's what the Apostle John saw. He, he saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Yes, there's books in heaven. It says there was another book, though, that was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And then the sea gave up the dead who were in it. So everybody drowns in the ocean. going to be there. So the sea gave up the dead. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. My friends, if you're an unbeliever, if you are part of this ungodly group, you are condemned judicially by the judge of the universe who always does what is right, the Bible says. And so, if you stand before God, well, everybody will stand before God someday. The books will be open. You can't argue. Everything you have thought, everything you've said, everything you've done, everything you didn't do and should have done is there. Everything. And you can't argue with it. 
you will agree with me. God knows. But we see also number two that they will not stand in the with sorry, they, they're not going to stand with the righteous. So the wicked will not stand in the judgment. But verse 5 also says, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. So you're not even going to stand with the righteous. You're not going to be there with them. These corrupt sinners are not going to be allowed to remain with this assembly of righteous people. They're going to be excluded from the joyful fellowship of the saints in heaven. They're going to be revealed here at the final judgment as what they really are. Rightly condemned by Christ, they will be removed from His holy presence forever. Sadly, when the Bible talks at the end of the the Bible here, Revelation 21, of, of heaven, it also tells us who's excluded from heaven. Because Revelation 21 says, As for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, in case you think that doesn't apply to you, this applies to everybody, because everybody's a liar. It says their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And then in chapter 22 it says that outside, that it's outside the New Jerusalem are the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Well, let's look at the last verse here, which summarizes for us the two ways in life. Remember, there's only two roads, only two paths, the highway, low way, the way of the righteous, the way of the wicked. Which path are you on? Well, we see the third point here is that the ungodly are damned eternally. The ungodly are damned eternally. If you go to the lake of fire, you don't get out. There is no relief. Because verse 6 says, For Yahweh knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So first of all, God tells you the way of the righteous. The way of the godly is, they're going to prosper. One commentator said this, it means far more here than that this person is informed about their ways. Rather, God has a personal, intimate relationship with the godly and is involved with them in order to guard, guide, and grace them. So it's not just that Yahweh knows a few things about you. (laughs) Oh, no, no. He knows everything about you. So the righteous are going to prosper, but verse 6 also says the wicked will perish. The wicked will perish. What does that mean? It doesn't mean they're annihilated. It, It doesn't mean they go into the ground and worms eat their body, and that's it. What can I say about that? horrible statement. Well, the truth here, my friends, is something that needs to grip your heart. Let me say this, because the word perish there means to die. It means you undergo undergo destruction. And when that word was used of destruction after death, it was never used of a destruction that led into complete annihilation. Never is it used that way in Bible. It spoke of an unending eternal destruction of these wicked people here that is something that never ceases. It's eternal. And here's what I'm trying to say, friends. The the wicked will suffer something that is relentless torment. It is a real place. 
And the Bible says that hell is real, and God's going to cast hell eventually into this lake of fire. There, there the wicked will always be perishing, forever suffering this eternal wrath of God. They're never going to find relief from God's just vengeance. This is exactly what they deserve. In fact, this is what I deserve. The only reason I will not spend eternity here is because of God. I deserve it, but God doesn't give me what I deserve. We all deserve eternal death, so if you're not going to get that, you can thank God for His grace, because you don't want what what you deserve. In other words, my friends, plead for God's grace. You say, what is God's grace? Well, grace is God's unmerited favor. Grace is receiving what you don't deserve. None of us deserve the greatest gift. Thank God for Christmas. Because He gave you the greatest gift. See, God loves the world. John 3.16 says, how did He show that to you? He gave you the greatest gift in His Son, right? God loved the world, so He gave His only Son so that you can avoid this. You can have eternal life instead of the eternal destruction. How do I get it? Trust in Christ to avoid perishing in hell. My friend, if you're a Christian, you, you need to keep trusting in Christ. Keep trusting in Christ. Live this way of the godly. See, without Him, you can do nothing. So my friends, which way are you on? Which path are you on? Which road are you on? Are you on this road to blessing? Or are you on the road to cursing? Are you on the road to life or on the road to death? This is the choice that God lays out before us in the Psalter. The book of Psalms is going to keep giving you this theme over and over. The way of wisdom, the way of the godly. Follow God, know Him, worship Him. That's what Psalm chapter 1 is teaching us. So may God, by His grace, help us to understand this truth and to live it. Let's pray. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for showing us the way of the godly and this way of blessing and prosperity and joy and, and happiness. May we really believe what Psalm 1 is teaching. These are Your words. You are the living God. This is Your living Word. It's always applicable and relevant for us, even today. May we desire this. Give us the motivation to walk not in the counsel of the wicked, to to not stand in the way of the sinners. Don't sit in the seat of the scoffers, but give us a delight in your word that we would meditate upon it. We would dig into it. We would find our nourishment there in, in you. May we not be too easily pleased with the things of this world, but may we be pleased and nourished by you and you alone find you to be more than enough. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.